welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Here we share information about farm practices, pulse markets, research outcomes, market development efforts, and much more. My name is Amber Johnson, and I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Julianne Curran, who is Vice President of Market Innovation with Pulse Canada. Julianne has a PhD in Human Nutritional Sciences and has worked at Pulse Canada since 2005 leading the development and implementation of technical marketing and downstream research strategies to diversify markets for the Canadian pulse industry. Today, we're going to discuss the Canadian pulse industry's 25% by 2025 market development strategy and where we are towards those goals, focusing on recent work and progress. Julianne, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amber. Julianne, we're gonna jump right in here. Um, can you explain at a high level what that 25% by 2025 strategy means and why this is important for long-term profitability and success at the end of the day for the Canadian pulse industry. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, just as background, about 80% of pulses grown here in Canada are exported largely unprocessed to international markets. And many of these markets that our industry relies on are price sensitive and can be impacted by geopolitics. So the 25 by 2025 target is aiming to reduce our reliance on these kinds of traditional markets with a goal of having at least 25% of Canadian pulses or roughly 2 million tons being used in value-added processing in markets that are closer to home with less risk. So essentially with this target, we're trying to build more inelastic, stable demand for 25% of our production by the year 2025. Excellent. Really, really important, I think, for our growers uh, to make sure that they are profitable and, and able to sell into higher value markets at the end of the day. Um, how did this strategy, I guess, come to be and how has it evolved since it was originally put into place? Well, the target was set by the Pulse Canada board. And with that target, we developed strategies that would help us to meet it and strategies that are unique and specific for each of the crops that we're growing here in Canada. They are designed based on the audiences, the end use applications, and the geographic regions that are most likely to deliver us with incremental volume and higher value opportunities for each of our crops. So in order to develop these strategies, we did a lot of modeling, a lot of data gathering, and we also worked collaboratively with all of Pulse Canada's member associations, including Saskatchewan Pulse Growers, um, so that this this is truly a national pulse industry strategy. How has it evolved? Well, we've had to adjust and adapt the strategy and tactics over time to account for the pandemic, of course, um, as well as changes that we've just seen happen in the industry over time. For example, um, when we first started working on the strategy, the emphasis for faba beans in Canada was really on addressing production issues. And as we've seen that crop continue to grow, we 
have now moved towards having a more dedicated focus to increasing faba bean utilization in the North American food industry. So that's been one example of a change. And then another of a more tactical example of where we've had to adjust is related to to COVID and the pandemic, we've had to move away from traveling and in-person events and activities, which were sort of a, a really core focus of our, our work prior to COVID. And so now we've been able to adjust and adapt and do a lot of our outreach work virtually and digitally. And it's actually been helpful in doing so because we are now able to really target our audiences, better able to gauge interest and measure the impact of, of what we're doing. So it's actually been in some cases cases um, really beneficial. That's great. It's, it's interesting to see those, uh, you know, positive outcomes out of, you know, such a challenging time over the last couple of years here. Um, how, how does this strategy, I guess, translate into the different pulse crops and tonnage that are identified for diversification needs? Yeah, so I talked about different crop specific strategies and and we do have some synergies between these strategies but they are definitely not a one size fits all and so just as an example the strategy for beans is very different than the one for peas we think about beans in canada relative to the other crops like peas and lentils they're relatively small in terms of production beans are primarily eaten whole. They have a high consumer familiarity compared to some of the other pulses like like lentils and peas. And so that strategy is very different because of that. Whereas the the strategy for peas is, you know, related to the high volumes that we have of peas that are produced here in Canada. Peas lend themselves to being used as ingredients. And we're seeing a lot of fractionation and ingredient processing growth for peas that, that we're leveraging. So just to make that point that the strategies are all there, there's some synergies between them, but they, they are very customized for, for the crops and, and the opportunities for those crops based on the volumes that we have. So the tonnage target for beans is the smallest of, of all of the, the crops. It's a 75,000 ton target, um, whereas peas has the largest tonnage target of 1.1 million tons. For lentils, we are aiming to see new value-added processing and lentil use in new markets of 625,000 tons. And with faba beans and chickpeas, both of those crops have targets at 100,000 tons for incremental use in North America. It's worth noting that when we developed the strategies for each crop, we looked at a lot of data on potential growth opportunities and and what the forecasted increase was for um, consumption. And with respect to chickpeas, the forecasts for U.S. consumption were actually greater than what our tonnage target was that we were aiming to see for incremental use. So for that reason, we decided to focus our efforts on the crops where there was more of a gap between the tonnage target and the current state and and where there was more of a need to have designated market diversification efforts to to get there and meet those targets. Great. Thanks, Julian. I think that's a great point that, you know, I think we need to remember to stay focused on where, you know, that biggest opportunity is. So making sure that, you know, that is addressing the biggest gaps is, I think, really important and really strong strategy. Um, let's drill into the different crops of interest here now and, and and take a little look at work and results and progress and that sort of thing. So maybe let's talk first about peas. So can you maybe, Julianne, share some recent work and results from that pea strategy and, and let us know a bit about how we're progressing towards those tonnage roles for peas in particular? 
Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, a major focus for the P strategy is to leverage the growth we've seen in ingredient processing and, and fractionation of peas. So we want to ensure that there is demand for these ingredients as well and, and all of their co-products. And so one of, one of the projects we've been working on, um, just as an example, is to gather data on quality attributes of Canadian peas that relate to their processing and ingredient functionality and ensure that we've got a good understanding of how different Canadian pea varieties perform, as well as the environmental and location effects that can impact their, their quality for processing. We want to ensure that Canadian peas um, are used in fractionation processing and are preferred, and that the ingredients that are derived from them are, are the best possible um, ingredients in terms of their performance. And we feel that that's really going to be significant in terms of demand opportunities for, for Canada. So we've collected this data for three years now and, and are sharing it continually with processors. We will be also sharing it with producers and, and hope that this will provide more opportunities to supply higher quality crops to the processing sector who is uh, willing to pay a, a higher price um, for these, these attributes. We've also, I talked about demand building of the ingredients. So we've had really good uptake on events targeting food manufacturers that are showcasing Canadian pea ingredients. We've had three events, for example, um, on pea ingredients this past year, virtual events where we've had over 300 attendees. So a lot of a lot of uptake and interest. So those are just a couple examples. Um, in terms of where we're at for peas, I talked about the target for peas being 1.1 million tons of incremental use, primarily in, in North America. Um, by 2025. And we're estimating that we're at about 700,000 tons of, of potential usage for Canadian peas in North America. So we're not too far off, but there's still work to be done. Awesome. Thanks, Julianne. Um, let's switch gears into lentils now. And um, maybe same question. Can you share some recent works and results from the work with lentil and that strategy and how we're also progressing towards those uh, tonnage goals for lentils as well? Well, let me start off by saying that the, the target for lentil is extremely ambitious. As I mentioned before, this is a pulse that is not as familiar to consumers in non-traditional markets. It doesn't have a lot of value-added processing activity already going on like we see for peas. So our lentil diversification strategy has a few different streams. One of the streams is focused on building lentil ingredient processing activity. So more value-added processing of, of lentil. And this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation because while we're trying to build food industry demand for lentil ingredients, we also need to, at the same time, build interest among processors to actually make these ingredients so that there are options available. So we're trying to do both simultaneously, but there's a, there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done there. We do see really significant volume potential for lentils to be used as flowers. A lot of interest by flour millers and end-use manufacturers to use lentil, lentil flowers in a range of food products. So um, that, that's really positive. One of the activities we have going on right now is a major 
online marketing campaign that's targeting end-use manufacturers. And it really highlights the advantages of blending lentil flours with cereal-based flours to meet nutrition targets in, in a range of food products. That's one of the, the really major advantages of, of lentil flour. So that's just one activity. We also recently completed a project that was more of a proof of concept project to show the benefits of using lentil flour in batters and breadings and have been promoting those project results to the food industry, but also to the food service sector. So it's it's got potential quite broadly in both food service and, and retail food manufacturing. So that's been really, I think, um, well-received by the sector. So there's, there's a lot of volume potential for lentils in the ingredient space, but it's going to take us time to get there and a lot more of, of these types of activities that, that we'll need to do to increase that awareness and, and increase that demand. Um, we have a pretty big gap between that 625,000 ton target and the current volumes of lentils being consumed in North America. We're probably closer to about 100,000 tons. That's why we're not just limiting the lentil strategy to ingredients. We also have a major focus on increasing lentil use in food service. But I think, Amber, you are the best person to talk about the lentil food service strategy. This is an area you've been leading for the industry. So I'm going to turn it back over to you to share some of the work and, and result in that strategy. Sure. Thanks, Julianne. Appreciate that. And happy, happy to speak to this for sure. And I guess maybe just to set the stage a bit for those wondering, when we refer to food service, that, that really means food consumed outside of the home. So everything except for retail. So not the food you buy in grocery stores and take home and might prepare and eat. It's really food consumed in, in other spaces. So that's what we refer to uh, when we say food service. But yeah, so our, our food service outreach work right now has primarily been focused on the United States market and and around whole lentil use for the past several years. But we're also beginning to expand that work now into Europe just this year with an initial focus on Germany and the Netherlands. So we're working with a consultant out there to really begin the similar type of outreach work to food service operators in Europe. So really exciting to be able to take some learnings from the United States and, and transfer that to a new program uh, across the ocean. But our, our food service work in the United States here that I, I primarily lead is broken into a few different areas. So the first is non-commercial food service, which includes food consumed in captive audiences like colleges and universities, healthcare and hospitals, corporate dining, settings where you're not going there primarily to eat, but there are food services there. So we've done a lot of work specifically in college university dining over the past several years with a lot of success, I would say. Um, we've worked with chefs directly to make sure that there are more lentils on their menu, which are very attractive to their student base, looking for healthy, sustainable, and more plant-forward options, which is of interest to Gen Z who are consuming food in those spaces. And we've actually over the years worked directly with full culinary teams at over 13 different universities via our uh, custom on-site kind of training and development program that we work specifically on menu development gaps with their team. So it was a really successful program that uh, we were really actively putting out there pre-COVID and, and hoping to bring it back now that students and teams are back on campuses. And then over the last two years, we've really also defined and focused our commercial food service outreach. So that is to chain restaurants with really that volume potential across the country to drive tonnage. So actually in just a really a standing start in, in early 2020, um, and then looking back to February 2021, we actually saw the launch of our first menu item as outcome of this work and outreach strategy. It was a Mediterranean bowl at the regional chain restaurant called Be Good. So nice to see some early success there. It was actually launched as a permanent menu item, which is rare. Usually new menu items come out as limited time offers. And then 
then they come off after a couple of months. So to have an early success that reached kind of permanent menu status was um, a really nice early win for us. And now working with several other operators, we have two to three in the works right now that are in the process of putting dishes into the test markets and then hopefully reaching uh, their main menus in the coming months. And we'll be very excited to talk about those very soon. Uh, we also worked with a national meal prep company called Freshly, and we worked quite closely with their uh, development team in the expansion of a plant-forward line of their meals. And they've actually launched five different dishes um, in the past few months through to their menu program. So some, some exciting things coming out, and all of that really just builds momentum and puts us well in line to, to bring that work and those case studies to other groups and build on that. And finally, I'll just mention quickly that we are working with manufacturers as well of pre-cooked lentil products, which is a really essential piece um, to this food service pie. A lot of food service operators aren't actually able to cook from scratch dry lentils. They need to bring in some kind of pre-cooked product to help with the, the labor constraints and the equipment and, and ability to cook. So we continue to work and meet with manufacturers of pre-cooked grains and other products to ensure that these solutions are available and in distribution for the operators that we're speaking to. So a little bit of a snapshot of the work there. Always happy to share those outcomes and, and definitely keep an eye out for new ones as we like to share those as they come out. But Julianne, I'll send it back to you here now and we'll switch gears a bit. You mentioned fava beans a bit earlier. Can you share some of that work that, you know, we're recently again, just sort of starting to dig into a little bit more for fava beans and how that's progressing so far? Yeah, so as we discussed, the fava bean strategy was added recently with, you know, the, the production of this crop in Canada continuing to grow and, and the recognition that, that we needed to, to do more to ensure there was a market for this crop um, close to home. And so we really are focused on increasing North American um, food industry use of, of fava bean ingredients and, and encouraging um, more fava bean processing here at home. And so um, one of the things we did this past year was um, held a, an event virtually, of course, but I wanted to, to say that this was actually one of our most well-attended events. Um, it was exclusively on fava beans and fava bean ingredients. It highlighted sort of the Canadian industry and, and some of the processors here. There, there certainly is a lot of processor and food industry interest in this crop and ingredient as an alternative in the, in the protein space. So that's been really exciting. And um, so we've also created some resources on fava beans for the food industry, and we'll continue to highlight Canadian fava beans and, and the ingredient derivatives to the food industry audience through events and online activities um, planned for this year. Our target for fava beans is 100,000 tons of utilization in North America by 2025. I would say it doesn't look unreasonable that we could achieve that, but the challenge will be in having that full amount being used as ingredients in the in food applications where we'll get the highest value. So that, that's what we'll continue to work on. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Julianne. So switching gears maybe a little bit again and focusing on something that really is an underlying uh, benefit and attribute of everything we just talked about, which is really that sustainability story of, of pulses and pulse ingredients. So we know that sustainability of Canadian pulses is really a main talking point within all of these strategies we discussed already and a key focus for Pulse Canada. So can you share what's really happening, I guess, more broadly on sharing the sustainability story of Canadian pulses and how it can really benefit all of the work that we've talked about here today. 
Yeah, we are certainly, you know, seeing a lot more focus on sustainability and environment within companies in the ingredient processing and the food manufacturing sector today. The initial focus within companies seem to be more on making commitments, reaching their goals, doing things, you know, like packaging changes, turning turning down the lights, <laughs> things like that. But, you know, consumers are having, you know, increasing scrutiny on, on products they're purchasing and they're asking questions companies are, are having to answer about the sustainability of the products that consumers are buying. And, and they have to, um, as companies account much more for exactly what goes into it um, and tracing that back. So the life cycle analysis data we collected um, over the last couple of years for Canadian pulses has been a big initiative for us. Um, it's it's more detailed. The data that we have on Canadian pulses is more detailed than, than pulse data from any other country. It's also really robust um, and credible data because of the representation of the different production regions um, that it covers. And so we're, we're really promoting and highlighting the significance of this data. And we've made it widely available to, to processors in food industry both through databases, public databases that they would access data from, but also making it available for them online through through our, our website. We've been actively marketing this data to food industry and processors. We have a major sustainability campaign going on, a digital campaign targeting these audiences. And so this is what we're really highlighting to that audience. And so, yeah, it's certainly, you know, one, it's an important, it's one of many benefits that, that pulses have. And and certainly uh, today, a much more important benefit. But I think that one that actually is something we can tie back to Canada. And so we're taking every opportunity we can to do that. Awesome. Really, really important stuff and, and really supports all of that work and, and getting it into the ears of the stakeholders that matter. To Just before we wrap up here today, Julianne, I, I guess one thing that you know, it's important to SPG and that we always sort of emphasize is it, to keep in mind when we're talking about market development work, it's really the long-term nature of it, right? It's, this is this is work that, you know, you see the benefit of years from now and, and just something to keep in mind as we talk through these, you know, strategies, approaches, the work and the results is that, you know, it really is undertaken with a long-term view and immediate results are really less common and that we, yeah, we see those benefits over a longer term time. So in terms of diversifying tonnage into new uses and new markets, what are you able to share in terms of, you know, whether or not we're at least, you know, moving in the right direction, understanding that big upticks are, are maybe less obvious, but taking that longer term view of progress? Yeah, so I think it's really important to note that these targets are really great as guiding stars for us. They point us towards the right audiences, the right opportunities that are going to deliver volume, but they are very ambitious as we've talked about them throughout the podcast today, but we are definitely moving in the right direction. And I, so I want to emphasize that um, it may seem like we're not seeing impacts in tonnage quickly enough, but I just um, want to emphasize that we have seen an extremely substantial amount of growth in pulse processing and utilization over time, um, over the time that I've been in the industry. So just for example, we've grown from only six ingredient processing companies in Canada in 2005, 22 companies and growing. 
this year. So there's been a lot of growth in, in processing here. We've seen incredible amounts of growth in new products being launched with Pulse Ingredients over that period of time in all different categories, all different Pulse Ingredient types. It's really been astounding. The volume, we have limited data available, but you know, to sort of track volumes of ingredients being used, but the one ingredient we can track is protein. And the volume of pea protein that was being used in the North American food industry uh, in 2010, it's a little more than 10 years ago, was less than 100 tons. And we're at 24,000 tons, um, you know, 10 years later. So there has been growth and we are moving in the right direction. It is taking time. Anecdotally, I can say like 15 years ago, you could walk around a grocery store, you could barely find any products that had pulse ingredients in them. I know because we tried to do it. We could find canned, dry beans, soups, chilies, but today you can go down almost every aisle, every category, you can find something. So it's going to take many companies, many products to achieve tonnage, but we are headed in the right direction to become that food and that ingredient that is found at high volumes throughout the whole food supply. So it's exciting. Yeah, very exciting, Julianne. I think there's a a lot of of exciting things on the horizon and a bright future ahead, of course. And, you know, everything we talked about here today, again, is, you know, higher value markets for our farmers at the end of the day to be able to sell their product into, which keeps them and remains uh, a profitable sector for them to be playing in. So that's fantastic. And and really appreciate your commentary here today, Julianne, on you know what's happening, what has happened, and how we're progressing towards those market development goals. That really wraps up our discussion here today. And I want to give you a big thank you, Julianne, for joining us. And thanks for everyone for tuning into this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. To stay up to date with us, You can also subscribe to our mailing list on our website. We send regular updates, keeping you informed on global markets, new technologies, and trends in pulse production. Thanks for tuning in to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast, and we'll see you next month.